This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we finally have some encouraging news in the fight to end the opioid crisis. Dr. Jillian Cola, postdoctoral researcher, tells us about an Ontario study that looks into how safer drug supply has drastically dropped overdoses and folks who have passed away. It is science and research to support the notion that a safe supply is the key, not more criminality. NASA is about to play a game of baseball in space. Maybe it's more of a game of darts. Going for that triple score, Andrew Steve Ferreira, our space expert, helps us understand NASA's DART mission and how the space agency plans to crash a rocket into a meteor for science. Plus, are you okay with grunge music? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with grunge? Mm, I feel... I missed it, you know, born in 96, so kind of born during the peak of it. And by the time I was old enough to recognize what it sounded like, it already kind of sounded like it wasn't for me. And I think there's like a couple of grunge songs that I'm okay with, some Nirvana, a little bit of Pearl Jam here and there. But for the most part, you know, it's just not, I like what it did for rock, but it's just not, it's just not for me, I don't think. Hmm. It's fine. It's, um... It's kind of slow punk, you know? It uh, takes a lot from punk from the 70s, uh, from a lot of uh, groups like Iggy and the Stooges, some real groundbreaking groups, and then just kind of slows it down uh, into a sort of sad Seattle droll. Um, So I've never really gotten hugely into a lot of grunge. I mean, I've listened to all the albums, but they never really... Pretty dark. Yeah, they never really did much for me. It's not like it made you feel great when you listen to Angry Chair. No, you know? no, and the nineties, early nineties, was a fairly prosperous time, and Seattle's a really nice city. I go there quite frequently, and I'm like, how did this spawn grunge? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Everything's nice. Everyone's wealthy. You know those elements of punk that you talk about slowed down. Plus plaid. Yeah, Worth noting. The plaid, oh, too. good. Yeah, the fashion. Fashion's huge. People still dress that way today, though. That's one well, lingering really making thing a comeback. from grunge. People still wear Nirvana t-shirts, A, because they like Nirvana, and B, they have no idea who Nirvana is, but they love the logo and love mm. what it kind of represents, that sort of, I don't care, mentality. And I mean, the, the whole genre killed hair metal. It killed like 80s rock and roll, right? So even if you don't love mm, it, well. it changed what we hear on the radio, which is uh, kind of amazing. 80s rock and roll was going to die anyway. Like, do you think yeah, Nirvana, Nirvana ran out of hairspray? Yeah, you think if Nirvana, Nirvana never came along, we'd still be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, don't yeah think I would so. agree. No. I mean, the tight pants and the hairspray needed yeah. to go. I think everyone was pretty good with that one when it all happened, <laughs> without a doubt. Okay, like uh, like BK described, you know, grunge really does bring punk rock, heavy metal, put it all together, and just kind of new tempo, new structure, some pretty distinct mm-hmm. vocals too. Let's play a little game here, shall we? This is okay. a clip from Pearl Jam's Even Flow. Can you tell what the lyrics actually are, what he's saying? Now, that's what he's saying. Well, familiar. I got that part. Um, but Eddie Vedder, that's the magic of Eddie Vedder. Like that's that's the that's the that's that's the thing. So here here's the actual lyrics. 
Should we play one more? Play one more time so everyone can get a grip of it. Oh, hand out. Faces that he sees time again ain't that familiar. Okay. Yeah, I kind of hear that. Oh, dark grin. If he can't help. When he's happy, he looks insane. Now, Pearl Jam, to me, that album, 10, was just, I loved it. Still love it. Listen to it yeah, front to back. Idea. Like, it was fantastic, right? Grunge icons. But it seems we almost had another grunge icon, but it never came to be. It turns out that a very famous pop artist recorded a grunge album in secret. Oh, I know who it is. Who? It, don't reveal it. Yeah. Who is it? Well, it's this person. Wow. Holy moly. Um, okay, so uh, Mar- Mariah Carey uh, has a secret grunge album, seriously, that is about to be released to the world, so let's set it free. While Mariah was in the studio recording her smash hit album Daydream, she recorded a grunge-inspired alternative album that studio executives wouldn't let her release due to the massive risk it would be to her thriving career. When they told her this, Carrie enlisted the help of her good friend Clarissa Dane to re-record the lead vocals on the album, while Carrie provided backup vocals, and then they put that version of the album out under the moniker Chick. Fast forward almost 30 years later, and Mariah says she's unearthed the original version of the album with her lead vocals, and that it's something we should be hearing soon after she works on it a bit with another artist. Hmm. If by works on it, yeah. he means make us good. What's she going to do? She's probably going to, like, auto-tune, clean it up, and make it, like... Maybe she makes a grunge know. Christmas, the next grunge yeah. Christmas album. <laughs> Or maybe she goes full grunge. I mean, it's kind of making a little bit of a comeback, yeah. at least in like the people appreciating it. So maybe she just leaves it as is. Because if she pops it up, that's what people didn't like about it in the first place. So I feel like if it is coming, if she releases it in full grunge form, it might be horrible, but she stays true to herself. That's okay. But if she pops it up, then that's just a money grab and I don't I, like it. I would also disagree with her record label that it would have been a huge risk. I don't think releasing a grunge album in the early 1990s was a huge risk. Yeah. <laughs> it's no a doubt. good point. Okay, so uh, imagine this. Courtney Love, Mariah Carey, besties. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that fits. No, I don't think right, Courtney Love can really be besties with anyone. Kurt yeah. Cobain and Nick Cannon hanging out on a couple's weekend. You know? <laughs> So strange dynamic. Strange pair, right? Anyway, Mariah Corey, Carey told Rolling Stone that she was inspired by bands such as Hole and Green Day. At the not, time, according to NPR, grunge. she adopted an alter ego. I was playing with the style of breezy grunge, punk light white female singers who were popular at the time. You know, the ones who seemed to be so carefree with their feelings and their image. Where was Garth Brooks and his alter ego when you need him, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mariah Carey said she even did the album art, a cockroach, of course, because it's grunge, and some scrawled lipstick. She remembers driving around, shouting lyrics to the song she wrote that nobody knew, and you can look forward to it coming out soon. I would imagine in four days, five days, when we cross over until October 1st, we're going to start to see Mariah Carey 
in TV commercials for Christmas, yep. uh, shamelessly selling her soul because she makes so much money every year from Christmas. I just I can't picture a grunge song with a high pitched whistle tone like you gotta sing like low that. when you're doing grunge. All I want for Christmas here. Hey, can you play the Mariah Carey clip? Um, just again, just one little thing there, just a little for a sec. Okay, so I don't know how you sing that as grunge. Sweet, sweet, like how would you turn that yeah. into grunge? <laughs> like even Courtney Love, she sang like that. Like so, I don't. I'm interested to see how Mariah Carey's going to sound on this. To be honest, I'm Catherine has a great text here idea. She says uh, how the grunge stole Christmas. Oh God, that's very good. <laughs> if she names it that. I'm buying it just to put it on the wall. Dumbest <laughs> album the wall. ever. I love it. I'm Shane Hewitt. I'm in Calgary. Ryan O'Donnell's in downtown Calgary. Brennan Kelly is in downtown Vancouver. It's The Shift. This is Are You Okay With? And we'll start the next one with a completely out-of-context story for you. Okay, thoughts on Nicolas Cage? I think he's a genius. I mean, he keeps getting hired for some reason, and it's not because of his hair. I don't know. If I was in 70 films over 30 years and I spent each one talking at random volumes, I might accidentally win an Oscar. I think our opinions about pop culture are fed to us by machines designed to criminalize human autonomy. one. <laughs> What's that from? That is from community and there's an entire episode where they study nicholas cage and one of the characters goes completely insane trying to figure him out are you okay with nick cage it's, it's a well-known fact that i love the cage man has some horrible performances and some very good ones but he puts his heart into soul and every single one of them and i kind of respect that also he's just a weird guy who like bought a castle and and like went broke because broke? of it he did. He went super broke. That's why he did a lot of really terrible, like Christian apocalypse movies, and and then then he now he's had this career renaissance. It's just a fascinating look back, and I can't wait for the biopic about uh, about it. Um, all right. Is this like the all '90s edition of Are You Okay? It seems like, like it doesn't. Yeah. Like, what's next? Are you okay with Mad About You? Paul Reiser, Twister. <laughs> Riser. <laughs> wow. Okay. So uh, Nick Cage is kind of like cilantro. You either love it like Ryan does, or you share a common smell receptor gene cluster called OR6A2, which makes it taste like soap. Either way, that's why cilantro tastes like soap, by the way, for some people. Science. Nick's, Nick Cage's fans do truly love him, though. A pack of diehard fans who are running a cat-focused art show are showing their love for the cage with an exhibit all for him. As a dog person, I feel like this only seems appropriate for cat people. CatCon. Okay, I gotta say it. An event filled with single people. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I fold back the bunches on that one, eh? I'm just teasing. Come on. Dog people are single, too, sometimes. Uh, an event that describes itself as the biggest event in the world dedicated to cat and pop culture will honor Nick Cage with his exhibit, Uncaged, an unbearable weight of gen genius cat art in Pasadena, California, next month. If that's not weird enough for you, the exhibit's name is a spin on the movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a film starring Nick Cage. All of the R will 
pay tribute with cats? Okay, you're gonna have to help me there. All of the oh, art, yeah. I got it. Yes, oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, that's a, no. that, you, you can what was that? Yeah. What, is it, what do you call that? That was a typo. Yeah, was a typo. Ah, yes. Oh, start the week off Had strong, eh, Ryan? <laughs> yeah. Um, all of the art will pay tribute to his likeness with cats and memes. Susan Michaels, curator and founder of the Cat Art Show, praise Cage as an artist's dream sus- suspect sub subject. That was my brain, not Ryan's. Uh, she told the Huffington Post, "He's cult. He's camp. He's DGAF." Okay, what is DGAF? He don't give a. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Radio edit. <laughs> Cats have many of the same characteristics, so why not combine the two and celebrate it on canvas? And we think Nick would love convention. We think Nick would love the convention. There we go. He once shared a very special moment with his cat and talked about it on The David Letterman Show. I do remember having a bag of mushrooms in my refrigerator. (laughs) And I remember you mentioned your dog. Yeah. I had a cat, and... uh, my cat used to sneak into the refrigerator and he would steal the mushrooms. And I, I said, no, and his name was Lewis. I said, Lewis, you can't do that. You can't yeah. do that. It's not right. He ate them voraciously. He just loved them. It was like catnip to him. Uh, so, I, so I thought, well, what the heck? I better do it with him. And I remember lying in my bed for hours and Lewis was on the desk across from the bed for hours staring at each other. Not moving. Occasionally, he would go, but he would stare at me, and I had no doubt that he was my brother. Yeah. (laughs) That is why Nick Cage is cool, by the way. Exactly. Uh, Cat Art Show will sell the original artwork, which CatCon will display on October 1st and 2nd via its website. Ryan is interested. (laughs) Are you going to buy cat art? I will say I've seen some of it, and it's actually kind of neat it's very interesting i would prefer a dog than a cat with nicholas cage but i i do get it and the i imagine the art is going to go for stupid money like not like millions of dollars mind you but somebody's going to pay like two grand to have a painting of nicholas cage as a cat on their wall hmm. i guess it's kind of cool if he's playing poker then that'd be really cool see yeah. make your own cat version of the famous dog picture Okay, cat people, you're cool. That's all right. I know you love your cats. I love your love for cats. Can I say that? Maybe that's a better way to say it. I'm a dog person, but I do love your love for cats. I feel like it's inclusive. This is the Shift Podcast. We've had many conversations here on the Shift about opioids, use of drugs, how to deal with it, how to tackle it. We've heard all kinds of opinions on what to do with the drugs. Uh, There have been advocates that have been giving it away in order to keep it clean. The one thing that we have most certainly, I think, fallen to a place of is that as long as there is a dark underbelly of a drug supply, uh, there will be much crime and much hurt that comes from that with, uh, well, selfish people cutting drugs and adding things to it. So we've learned that here, and it has definitely changed my perspective on the use of drugs. And not to be forgotten is that, you know, the drug user is quite often not the stereotype that we toss at it as being this person in a back alley. We are learning more and more through, especially through the pandemic, that quite often people who get themselves uh, into a pickle with bad drugs or overdoses of drugs tend to be just the guy or gal next door. 
and we might not have any idea that that is going on. So that's a scary notion because that means it's possible we are blind. Joining me now is Jillian Cola, PhD, MPH, Banting Doctoral Researcher, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, University of Victoria, even though you join us from Toronto, not confusing at all. Hi, Jillian. Hello. Thanks for having me. Now, do you go by a Jill or a, a Jilly or a... I, I prefer Jillian. Jillian. Perfect. Yes. It's such a beautiful name. I like it. Thank you very much. I have a couple of friends that are Jillians, and I refuse to call them Jill. <laughs> for the record. Okay, yeah, Jillian. never really taken for me either. <laughs> Help us understand uh, where we're at here. Maybe we could just do a temperature check since this is your work on the status of um, the use of opioids and the impact of opioids in Canada today. Yeah. So I think where I'd like to start, if it's okay, is talking about the overdose crisis that we're in right now. Because I think that it's really important to recognize that since about 2016, 2017, we've seen a really massive change in the unregulated drug supply here in Canada. And when I say unregulated drug supply, what I'm talking about is kind of like the street drug supply. Um, so traditionally, there was a lot of heroin um, that was available in Canada. And starting at about 2016, 2017, at a very high level, the level in terms of, you know, the opioids coming into the country, that shifted. And since about 2017, 2018, especially in BC, Alberta, and Ontario, pretty much the entire opioid supply is fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is a medication that's used very frequently in hospitals. The fentanyl that we're talking about here is unregulated. It is very potent. Um, and the issue really is the variability of the drug supply. You were alluding to this earlier in your introduction, um, where the issue is, is you don't know how much or how potent the fentanyl is that you're taking at any one time. And this has led to a massive crisis of overdose deaths. Um, and so it's really an issue with the fentanyl that is coming into the country at source. Um, so we're not really at a point right now where people are cutting drugs in any way, shape or form. It's really that the only drugs that are coming in are fentanyl um, and that that's really led to people not knowing. If I can give you an example, um, it would be similar to if, for example, you know, I like a glass of Pinot Grigio every once in a while. I'm pretty confident when I go into the liquor store and I buy it that it's 11% alcohol by volume. If all of a sudden my wine was 80% alcohol by volume, it's a very, very different story. Or if I didn't know from a day-to-day -day basis, if the glass of wine I was drinking was 50% alcohol, 70% alcohol, or 95% alcohol. Yeah, or, or tequila, That's, for that matter, right? Like exactly. open up like, a I mean, bottle of wine, you got tequila inside. Yes. And tequila is essentially 40 proof, right? Like that's 40% right there. And so, I mean, so the issue with fentanyl really is this high variability in the supply. And we're seeing increasingly that different kinds of benzodiazepines, so a form of sedating drug are being added as well. All of this is happening at a high level, basically at the level of which it's coming into the country. Um, so it's not even really happening at the street level. And that's led to this overdose crisis that we're experiencing right now. I learned that I had surgery on my shoulder. And I mm -hmm. had um, fentanyl. They offered it to me at that point. They said, this is what we recommend. And then they go through the stigma around it and say, hey, by the way, this is not car fentanyl. This is not street drugs. This is the actual proper use of it administered yes. by a professional. Are you comfortable with that? And I said, will it make the pain go away? And they said, yeah. And it was probably the best seven seconds of my life when the pain went away and I fell asleep and I kind of went in that moment Oh, I get it now. 
And so, right? So you can see why people, just normal people, are looking for some help, relief, whatever it is that they're looking for, why they would seek this stuff out, and why they would go back for more if it worked out last time. I feel like I get that. So there has to be that uh, element of humanity in this conversation, too, that, you know, it's good stuff. Well, and I think the other thing that's important here is that's to realize is, is that, yes, fentanyl is very potent. That's why it's used in hospital settings, in anesthesia. It's used extensively in intensive care units, for example, um, for people who are experiencing quite a, um, significant pain. Um, it's a very, very safe drug when it's used in those settings because mm-hmm. there's a level of monitoring that's necessary. Um, but I think that the trick that's important to recognize here is that when people are using fentanyl from the streets, um, they're not choosing to use fentanyl. It's basically all they're is. I speak a lot to people who use drugs, a lot to people who've used drugs for decades. And most people would love to have a return to heroin. They'd love to have a return to a drug supply that they knew and that wasn't causing this massive level of overdose deaths, the Russian roulette essentially that we're seeing with fentanyl in the drug supply. That's a crazy notion, hey, to go, I wish I had heroin back. Um, The Okay, it's not so, so crazy. We've actually had heroin programs in Europe for a very long time, for several decades. Well, I think that when programs- we look when we look at yeah, I guess what I'm saying is is that it's like um, it's uh, it, uh, heroin has been given its own stigma for so long, right? Very and much. Um, you know, and you know, all of these things. I, safe to say that all intoxicants like this they poison your body. I guess I'm taking that lens of that. You know, all of these things are are generally not good for you, although safer doesn't necessarily mean safe right like too much of too much of the 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 natural stuff still isn't good for your body um and and all of that but here's the the interesting stuff when when it's clean product and it's delivered as clean product you've seen some massive changes on what happens inside overdoses opioid deaths and the things that people go through who are drug users yes so one of the studies that we had published this week in the Canadian, um, the Journal of the Canadian Associ- uh, Medical Association was um, looking at a program called a safe supply program, where basically people who are using and who are dependent on streets acquired fentanyl get given a form of a prescription opioid. Um, and they can take it home, they can use it when they need throughout the day. And what our study showed was that people who had access to this program saw very significant declines in their health service utilization. So they used the emergency departments much less frequently. They were admitted to hospital less, much less frequently. Um, they were admitted to hospital for infections that sometimes come along with injection drug use much less frequently. Um, and we also saw a lot of declines in their healthcare costs as well. Um, and so I, I think that it, it, it's one of those studies that kind of turns notions on its head because we have such a prohibitionist view of drug use that says, like you were saying, oh, all drugs are bad and it's better off if people just stop using drugs completely. So what we're arguing for here is that for people who are using a highly toxic and a highly variable drug supply like fentanyl from the streets, giving them a prescribed opioid of a known dose and a known quantity can actually significantly help them out, make them better, and reduce the usage of the healthcare system, which in the current time of COVID is a very, very important thing as well. So the notion, um, and I'm just asking this for the sake of conversation and uh, being sort of a devil's a- devil's advocate, because I can I can hear the emails arriving at my mailbox in my mind right now. Which wouldn't it be better invested to help people with why they choose drugs versus making sure that they um, 
making sure they get clean drugs, sort of a, a cart before the horse mentality. Can we bat that ball around a little bit? Uh, not because it's my opinion. I just want to be clear on that, but just because of the fact that I know I'm going to get asked that. So I want to be able to be uh, offer that question too. Yes. No, that's a great question. So listen, I don't think that anybody who's involved in giving, providing harm reduction programs, because Safer Supply is generally described as a harm reduction program, similar to supervised consumption sites, supervised injection sites. Nobody within harm reduction thinks it's a bad idea to have a plentiful supply of evidence-based addiction treatment. Um, Everybody would argue that that is a great thing. We should basically, we should have treatment on demand for people. For people who want to go into a form of evidence-based treatment, they should have access to that immediately and it should be fully paid for so that everybody can have access when they need it. That is no question. The issue is, is that we don't see the best levels of retention in all times in treatment. It often takes people quite a few times of treatment to find an element of stability. And one of the things that we know is even some of our best forms of treatment actually don't work for everybody. This is why you've seen countries like Switzerland, for example, offer heroin-assisted treatment for decades now so that you have an expanded array of options available so we can meet as many needs as possible. So yes, I'm all for let's have very, very high quality, good quality treatment for people. Um, I I would just put in a nudge here that a lot of what passes for treatment is actually not evidence-based. I think we actually have to have a question about our conversation about how a lot of the treatment that's offered to people, exactly standards, a lot of it is for profit. Um, and is not of high quality. Um, And so I I think that we need to have high quality evidence-based treatment available for sure. But for people who either don't want to go that route or it hasn't worked for them, we need something to keep them alive. We've had 30,000 deaths in Canada since 2016 alone. Um, And so we're really at a place right now where we're in a crisis. This is leaving massive, massive holes in our community. People, I mean, the, the... Some of the work that I do, some of the research I do is around grief and loss in communities. I speak a lot to families, to friends who've lost people to overdose. We're losing an entire generation of mostly young men to overdose. And we really need, this is one of those areas where we need to actually be throwing everything at the problem. For some people, it's going to be treatment. For some people, it's going to be safer supply. And it's going to be giving them a regulated supply of a drug so that they're not going to be dying of the variable fentanyl that's on the streets right now well you just said that we lose people um and uh, i'm this is way cold and callous it's even out of my character to ask this question but i do want to ask this question is our perspective a little bit too much about who you and i lose because i've lost people uh, Mm -hmm. to overdose so i've been through that myself so i feel like i can speak to that experience quite uh i don't want to say well quite terribly Mm -hmm. Uh, um but the uh is is that our look though I mean, when we're, we're sitting here and we're, we're looking at this, is that too much our look? And perhaps we should not be looking at it that way. I mean, when we look at this, Jillian, it's possible those people don't want the same things we want. And I, I mean, I have, I have, we've had, we have some very uh, consistent guests on this show that are opioid users. They're very open about that and they don't want to die. Um, mm-hmm. They just want to be able to live. Um, yeah. But there are people out there that, you know, their opinion might be different. And are are we offside in, in demanding that they get healthy or sober or all those things that, that are there? Because um, th- that swirls around this, too, about is it our choice? And I, I, I really hear now my personal opinion insertion is that I really hear the standards part have an option at least for someone to go to if they choose to go. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's a choice thing that 
that people get to make too. Yeah. It's hard, right? I mean, I don't know if it's actually that hard because we literally have a program here that shows no overdose mortality in the people who are receiving it, that shows that people are getting healthier. We have research in both Ontario and BC, where when we talk to people who are on safer supply programs, they tell us that they're feeling happier and healthier than they have in years because they've received safer supply. They're reconnecting with their families. They're getting jobs. They're doing really, really well. I think we have to listen to those people too. I think that we have to realize that when it comes to drug use, there's some really moralistic approaches. I often say, as somebody who researches drug policy, that often Often drug policy is where evidence goes to die. We've known for a long time some of the things we can do to keep people who use drugs alive, and we've chosen not to do them because instead we've chosen to wag our finger at them and tell them, nope, you need to do better. You need to pull up your socks and you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The yeah, fact we take of the, the matter is too. Exactly. And the fact is is that that hasn't worked. And we're looking at the damage in our communities all the time of the people that we've lost, the people in the primes of their life who, quite frankly, we haven't given them a chance uh, because we're not willing to engage with some of the evidence-based options that are out there that sometimes might offend somebody's morals who thinks that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. We lost a lot of people to poisoned alcohol during prohibition as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you that's know? such a great example. I think that's such a simple example that translates to the I've the I've never used drugs people who who have never been around drugs. Even some people have never been around it; they've never used it, so they they cannot connect with this conversation in any way. But when you say in prohibition, this is what happened, then people start to go, "Oh, really? My beer was bad, right?" Exactly. Yeah. Your moonshine was killing people. It was blinding people. Um, I think the other thing too that's important to realize is that we often think that our drug policy, in terms of which drugs are illegal and which drugs are not illegal is based on some form of evidence about the harms, the relative harms, either to the individual or to society that the different substances cause. That's not actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our drug laws were actually based in very, very racist moral panics. For example, the Opium Act, Opium Act in Canada, which is the first drug law that was put in place, was based in a lot of hysteria around Chinese communities using opium. And that was where this came from. Um, opium was and is um, a very, very Um, it's the basis of many of the opioid drugs that we have today. Um, And so it wasn't based in any kind of relative safety of the drug. Um, It was very, very much based in kind of like, you know, these racist hysterical notions that were coming up at the time. Um, And so I think we have to really, really like kind of like tweak our notions of where the harms come from. Alcohol causes a huge amount of harm in our society. Mm -hmm. It's a known carcinogen. It actually causes cancer. This is very, very well documented. Um, And yet we still give people the choice of whether and how they want to use it, despite the enormous amount of harms, as well as the enormous cost to the medical system that alcohol causes. Cigarettes, boy, that's a good example, right? Exactly. But people putting people in jail for either smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol wouldn't actually take away those harms. It wouldn't just increase the harms by Mm -hmm. throwing in the harms of criminalization in prison on top of that. And that's essentially what our current drug policy does for a whole ream of other drugs. Uh, Jillian Cola, we're talking about safe supply and opioids. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the people users that I've spoken to will just say like, if, if we could only have opium, this would be so different. So what does safe supply actually look like? Is it someone in a lab coat standing on a street corner instead with a a little name badge? I mean, I don't think we really even know what that looks like. 
That's a great question. So right now, the programs that we're talking about are what would be called medicalized or prescribed safer supply. So basically, they're run by community health centers, primarily in Ontario. There's some programs as well as in BC um, and other programs, a smattering of other programs around the country. But what it basically looks like is you go in to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner. They do kind of like your regular checkup that your doctor would do. And then based on your use of opioids from the street, they do a calculation of how much opioids they're going to prescribe to you. And they start at a low dose and then they titrate it up. They move it up to a point where you're feeling comfortable. Because when people aren't taking opioids, people who've developed a dependency on them, you go through a very, very painful withdrawal symptom. And so you basically take people up to a point where they're feeling pretty good. People then take the prescription from the doctor. They go and they fill it at any pharmacy and they take their opioids at home how they want, when they want. Um, they see their doctor pretty regularly at the beginning of the program to check in, make sure everything is going okay and take care of any other health needs that they might have. So it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty standard. Um, a lot of the programs also are really aimed at people who are experiencing some severe social difficulties around their drug use. So folks experiencing homelessness, folks who might have other medical conditions, folks who might have some mental health conditions. So a lot of these programs also have what we call wraparound services. They have social workers, counselors, patient navigators who can help people access other forms of care, either medical care, mental health care, or social care in the community they might require. So it's a little bit like a one-stop shop for folks who are experiencing pretty problematic patterns with their substance use, with their opioid use, um, and an attempt to help people find that stability in their lives. I'm a hippie. Mm -hmm. And so in my heart, I am truly a hippie. And you know what the biggest burden for me in all of this is, Jillian? Um, now, I don't have opioids in my life, so it's I don't see it the same way, the, the, the chemistry, the biology, all those things that happen to people. Um, I see it as a burden. I see it as the burden as the guy who um, maybe is, and I have a picture in my head of who this guy is. Um, it's a guy who's probably in his 50s. His kids might even be growing up. He's probably divorced. He's sort of living on his own. Doesn't really have a roommate. He's by himself. And he uses from time to time. And nobody knows. He can't go to anybody and talk to anybody in his family uh, about the psychology around it and why he's there. Plus the fact that he is using and sometimes puts himself in a, in a dangerous place and nobody really knows. And the burden of letting the people down around him in case it goes sideways that sits on that person's shoulders to me feels really, really heavy. And then when other people know and they feel completely helpless there, when there is no structure and standard that you speak of to help the people in their lives, they carry this burden, burden of it. And I kind of, it's for in my mind, I always imagine it to be like the Dr. Bill inter, uh, Dr. Phil intervention burden, right? That we're supposed to somehow step into that. And that's the burden to me. And that's very, very scary. And that's the burden that spreads like dominoes in this conversation. So I really appreciate you being here and sharing your thoughts on this today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. This is the Shift Podcast. So about a year ago, we started a conversation that was like a scene from Armageddon. And uh, turns out a year later, they're going to do it. It's time for some weird science with Andrew C. Ferreira. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. It is weird. Andrew, welcome back to the mm. world of the uh, the uh, the living here. It's your kind of well, time of day. Start. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. 
Well, you, last living. time we talked to you, you're pretty foggy. You were just finishing all of your exams and all your school and all of your papers. Everything had to be done. Yep. I'm hoping you've slept since. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. Nice. You know, enough. And well, I don't know if it was enough, but you know, I don't think you can ever uh, fully regain the sleep that you lose uh, in in chasing uh, a very expensive piece of fancy paper. Yes, very expensive. So you're done now. Mm-hmm. Yes, they haven't told me that uh, I failed, and they are going to expel me. So uh, I'm going to take the silence uh, as a good sign. No news is goodness. Love this. Exactly. It's good. I like this. All right. Well, we have uh, news. We're going to talk about some space things. We'll talk about the failure things, I think, about all the rockets and the things that aren't happening with the moon. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this whole uh, tossing darts at an asteroid thing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where we get started. Can you recap the story from about a year ago when they launched this sucker? Yeah. So basically, uh, a year ago, uh, they launched this, and it's called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or the DART. Um, and its job is to see if, um, you know, all of the science fiction uh, stories that we tell about, well, if there's a big rock that's coming for Earth, um, if we just smack into it hard enough with a big piece of whatever, um, that'll be a big enough push to nudge it out of the way. Um, and in theory, the physics holds up. That is exactly what should happen. Um, but like with all, you know, important things, i.e. like, you know, potentially sparing the Earth from a uh, extinction-level uh, asteroid impact. Uh, probably better to test that uh, before we put all of our eggs in that basket. Um, and just mm-hmm. to make it abundantly clear, we're not in danger. Just in case, because people are like, well, why, why would they be launching? If, if Surely that means we're in danger. Eh, no, we're not. I mean, not in any more danger than we always have been and always will be. With it, when it comes to asteroid impacts, there's there's a rock somewhere out there with you know uh, our planet's name plastered across its surface, and who knows when it's going to cross our path? Um, might be in ten years, might be in a million years. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, this is just you know I you know I call it disaster preparedness, right? You got to make sure that uh, what we think works actually works before we actually you know invest the money, time, and expertise. Uh, into it because it would be kind of silly uh if we you know were uh, you know in the crosshairs of a big old rock and we fired this thing that we thought was going to work and it didn't and then we'd be like well um that sucks oops yeah yeah uh oh Uh, so so that's essentially the the backgrounder for this all all ben affleck jokes um aside you can make a lot of those yeah, you can. Um, there's without a doubt. That's Armageddon movie joke. Okay. Um, so the idea here is that sometime later today on Monday, that these rockets that are flying at like 14,000 kilometers per hour, um, they're going to, you are the loudest typer in the world, by the way. Oh, it's um, not, um, I don't type loud. It's my keyboard. It, it's, oh. <laughs> uh, modeled after, you know, those old IBM keyboards. Yeah. Well, that's what it sounds uh, like. It sounds like one from the eighties, exactly like a Commodore 64. Is. That's exactly yeah. what this is modeled after. It is meant yeah. to be as loud and obnoxious to everyone but me. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> um, it's absolutely pleasurable to type on. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, this is so funny. The, so they're going to 14,000 kilometers per hour, rockets crashing into this thing sometime today. What is going to happen? They're going to blow up an asteroid and see what happens, question mark? Like, it seems weird. Yeah, it's we're not going to blow it up, perhaps. So what... 
what is actually happening here is the target for this mission um, is a double asteroid. So basically, it is a bigger asteroid with a smaller asteroid orbiting it. Um, the uh, bigger asteroid is called uh, Didymos, um, and the smaller asteroid is called Dimorphos. Um, and the DART impact satellite is actually going to be impacting Dimorphos, the little moon. Uh, and the goal is to see if this impact actually adjusts that little moon's orbit enough um, that we could potentially scale up any potential impactor uh, for any asteroid relative uh, of its uh, relative to its size. Uh, and so the reason that they're kind of targeting this little moon of this little asteroid, and yes, asteroids can have moons, um, the reason they're targeting this is because they know its orbital uh, information around this rock, uh, around this bigger uh, rock. It can essentially say, okay, well, once it impacts, we can check these little minute changes in its velocity uh, and its orbital period around this rock. And the magic of physics tells us we can scale that up uh, as much as we need to once we have that data. And so from me saying all of this, uh, DART's impact is about 16 and a half hours from now o'clock. Um, it's actually scheduled for, I believe, seven, just past 7, 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern time um, uh, on Monday. So it would be 4, 10-ish uh, out west, uh, 7, 10-ish out east. Yeah. Um, and half an hour later in Newfoundland. Okay. And half an hour so, later in Newfoundland. Um, okay. So, but has anybody asked the question? Now, I don't want to get too mystical mm-hmm. here. But really, when you look back at the history of our Earth and of the universe, for hundreds of millions of years, if not billions and billions of years, cosmically speaking, all of these things have unfolded as naturally as we know them to have unfolded, meaning every rock has gone where every rock is supposed to go, and everything has hit where they're supposed to hit. And this particular asteroid, if we redirect it today... It's possible that this little maneuver forever changes the entire outcome of all of the universe just from the domino cascade effect of all things that it takes to happen. Am I crazy? No, no. Uh, I think that's a fair thing to say. And I mean, this verges more into uh, the philosophical aspect of how the universe, you know, works and how, you know, all these little decisions and all these little things can add up over time to make a difference. Um, no, I think that's entirely reasonable. But uh, I also just uh, took my left hand out of uh, my shorts and put my right hand into my shorts. So who knows what that just did? Well, it's true. We are constantly causing change, but none of us to the magnitude of of the ripple effect, if you will, or the butterfly effect of what this could be. Because if you imagine this, if we go backwards in time and say there was some human-like race hundreds of millions of years ago, that fired a rocket into space that redirected an asteroid that was supposed to bump into another asteroid that was going to get sucked into some planet's orbital thing and they get slingshotted away and crash into a planet and kill all the dinosaurs, that might not happen now because we screwed with it. Yep, it's entirely possible. I find that scary. And I'm not a very mystical person. Yeah, you know, we every little thing... You know, no matter how big or how small we do, every action that any of us in any capacity take in any way, uh, you know, interacting with the universe beyond ourselves, 
uh, alters it. It forever alters its path by some little bit. And in the case of uh, the DART mission here, um, I believe I saw a couple of scientists saying that they expect that the uh, velocity of that uh, little moon around this asteroid will change by about one millimeter per hour, um, which not a lot. Um, however, over you know a number of weeks, months, years, that might be enough to nudge something just out of the way. Um, space is really handy like that. Uh, little tiny bits uh, can really add up, but that's why concepts like uh, solar sails work you know, sailing literally on sunlight. It is almost zero acceleration, uh, but almost zero acceleration adding up, you know, every single second for years and years and years eventually adds to like 20% of the speed of light. So all these little things uh, can and do make a difference. Yeah. But I just, for me that I find that terrifying. Um, Okay. Uh, Text comes in from Don. He says, very curious to find out what something like ramming rockets into an asteroid slash big ass rock would cost. Well, Don, uh, thanks to my much quieter uh, keyboard than Andrew's, I have typed it in. Um, this is where Andrew can just start typing, so it sounds like it's. That, like, I, I was really thinking about it, but research. Okay, uh, three hundred twenty-four point five million dollars to get it going. There, three hundred eight million U.S. was spent on spacecraft, sixty-eight point eight million for launch, and sixteen point five million expected to be spent on operations and data analytics to crash rockets into a rock in space. It's not bad. Not bad is a good price, is it? No, I've seen I've seen much bigger wastes of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so we could get into that. Um, all right. Uh, well, speaking of seemingly wastes of money, at least oh, with dear. all the mistakes that are going on, let's transfer our conversation from smashing rockets into rocks in space to flying rockets to a giant rock in space, so we can move into it. Um, flying to the moon. Is it Artemis? Is that what it's called? It's the it's the space program to practice yep. this that can't get off the ground. Yeah, and boy howdy, um, Artemis, not not looking good. Um, and for me to really give a you know a, a, an accurate kind of history of Artemis, I would need three and a half segments, um, starting in the 1960s. But that's a bit silly. So I'll just say it like this and saying that. Uh, SLS, which is the big rocket, um, the new uh, Saturn V rocket, if you will, um, essentially acts in a lot of ways like the Saturn V. It uses a lot of the technology from the Saturn V. It uses some of the fueling systems from the Saturn V. It uses a lot of the engine parts from the Saturn V era. This is uh, a new rocket made up of very, very old parts. Uh, And we're starting to essentially see the problems. Um, You know, a lot of the fueling problems are inherent. Uh, to just the choice of fuel used. Um, and this was a decision made well before, you know, NASA in its current form uh, had any say in whatever this might look like. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing other more agile, you know, space companies such as SpaceX and Blue Origin uh, and uh, Boeing even uh, choosing different fuels for this very reason. But it is kind of unfair to essentially, you know, um, make fun of Artemis for the problems that it really can't control. Um, so we were all kind of waiting with bated breath to see if Artemis would launch um, several weeks ago. It didn't. They had fueling issues. These things happen. Um, and, you know, with a multi-hundred million dollar rocket, you probably want to make sure that you're 100% sure that it'll launch instead of blow up on the launch pad. Um, so that's why it was initially postponed. Um 
And just now, Mother Nature has decided to jump into the make fun of us party uh, by throwing a, a tropical storm right at uh, Cape Canaveral in Florida. Uh, and the problem with this is that, of course, safety, 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 especially when you're considering that this is a gigantic, essentially skyscraper tall fuel container. Um, probably best to make sure that we handle it in a safe way. Um, but there are actually um, problems with keeping a rocket out on the pad like that. It's got batteries. And these batteries have to be charged every now and again for safety's sake. And so the question has become, okay, well, with this hurricane coming, is it? do we think that it is safe enough to keep the rocket out there? And the rocket is actually... Um, capable of withstanding uh, winds of over 130 kilometers an hour. Um, it is, you know, it's built for a lot of what, you know, Florida weather can throw at it. Um, but the battery drain is becoming another problem. And if they have to roll it back to its little hangar, um, charge those batteries up and roll it back out, that pushes the potential launch window uh, three, four, maybe five weeks forward. Hmm. Um, and so that's just, you know, a lawn, another blip, if you will, in the delays behind the Artemis program. Um, the abundant caution that we have to take, especially with, you know, really, this is Artemis 1. This is the first real launch of this rocket. We've never launched this thing ever. So yeah. if we want to make sure that it's got the best chance of surviving and doing what we want it to do, we should probably err on the side of caution and just take it easy. I suppose it's probably unfair of us to, you know, be so critical when, you know, um, car companies launch a new car. It's not like they just take it out to the racetrack for the very first time and take her for a rip and she works perfectly, handles well. And then, by the way, they're like, yeah, okay, now it's for sale. It worked on the first try. I mean, these things take try and try and try again. And this is not only a car on a track. I mean, this is some little bit more three-dimensional kind of work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many little things. There are so many little things in every rocket launch that essentially have to, you know, somebody has to make that decision. Is this safe enough that we can ignore whatever problem this is? Um, and the bigger the rocket, the more potentially catastrophic, you know, these side effects and consequences can be. Um, and these, so, this is big too, right? Because they're taking like big stuff. That's the plan? Oh, yeah, no, this may very well, you know, this is the rocket planned uh, to really begin the next chapter in the space race, uh, in this oh. brand new space race. So, you know what? Um, I am in full support of them delaying this as long as they have to delay it, as sad as that makes me, uh, because better to, you know, you know, check off all your boxes, cross your I's and dot your T's, as the kids say, mm -hmm. um, just in case. Well Okay, so you made the comment about Mother Nature getting in the way. Would it not have made more sense to not, like, just maybe schedule this before hurricane season? I mean, everybody knows that come October, here come the hurricanes. Is that just, or is there some sort of top secret thing with the moon and the and the perigee or the apogee and the gravity of the tides plus the sun and Marvin the Martian or, like, what, what's going on there? Uh, I believe it more just comes down to it's ready. Let's get it ready and hope that the weather cooperates. And this is how a lot of, you know, shuttle launches have, you know, even going back to the Apollo missions, the Mercury missions, you know, yeah, this is how these things work. You just kind of hope the weather cooperates. If it doesn't, you can always stand down. You can always batten down the hatches. You can always play it safe. We might as well get it out there. And if we get a good break in the weather, we can go on time. Saw a really good video of a Tesla 
and they were talking about the mileage of the Tesla and how good its mileage was, but in the back, they had taken the back hatch window off and put a gas generator on the back of the car so it could charge the car while it drove. Could they not do that for this rocket, just like put a little generator under there and plug it in? Uh, Theoretically, yes. Uh, In a way that is safe and compliant with all of the procedures, absolutely not. Hmm. Well, that's disappointing. I know. Real life is often more of a disappointment than we like to think it is. Can you hit that keyboard a little bit loud again so we can hear it so it sounds uh, all smart? Yeah, hold on a second. Let me just type something up here. Um, Spacebar. Spacebar. Space Boy, you are violent oh, yeah. on that spacebar. It almost sounds oh. like an old typewriter. No, that's the point. All of the all of like the, the springs underneath these keys are metal. The back plate for this keyboard is metal. It is pig iron. It's a heavy oh, yeah. keyboard. It's just mm, I recommend you, you I recommend that to everyone who who appreciates the typing experience. If you yeah. like live with somebody who doesn't care about it, buy it. And if they do care, buy it. Who cares? Your life. It's worth it. There you go. If you want to if you want to graduate to Uber nerd like Andrew C. Ferreira, you gotta get a louder keyboard. Thanks for being here, oh, buddy. Yeah. yeah. No worries. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.